Right, so we are continuing in the book of James, and James is writing his letter to Christians scattered throughout the region by persecution. He's writing to comfort them, but also to rebuke and equip them in how to live as the church in the world and how to keep the world from influencing the church. He begins by speaking to them about counting it all joy when they suffer various trials uh, as we follow Christ, as we live in this sin-sick world. Of course, that message applies to us today as well because it takes divine wisdom to see through the dark clouds of today to that eternal glory tomorrow. And so we need that wisdom and the way to that wisdom that will allow us to look with joy upon the trials of life is through faith-filled prayer. That's kind of what we've looked at so far. And then last week we discovered that whether we're experiencing times of plenty or want, joy, or sorrow, we have to remind that our identity is found in Christ. So for those who are doing well, James says, boast in your humility, remembering that all the good things you have come from the Father, and they are given to us by His grace. And when things aren't going so well, when you're hurting, when you're grieving, when you find yourself in need, he said, boast in your exaltation, remembering that you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So our, our identity is found in Jesus. Not in what we do or don't have. Not in our successes or our failures. Well, in today's passage, James shifts from this focus on the outward trials that test us to the inner temptations that test us. And we need to realize that these two kinds of trials are actually linked together. They're not disconnected because every trial that we face out there in the world brings their own temptations with them, don't they? Right? I mean, if if we're suffering persecution, there's the temptation to sit down, be quiet, keep your beliefs to yourself. Maybe even to deny Christ. If someone says something hurtful to me, there's a temptation to strike back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You treat them the way they're treating you. And when life is particularly hard, we're even tempted to use our suffering as a justification for sin. Well, preacher, I'm having a hard time right now. Don't I deserve a little fun? I've worked hard. Don't I deserve a little pleasure? Don't I deserve something to take the edge off things, to to help me take my mind off my pain, we can use our own suffering as justification for sin. And we may even be tempted to blame God for our suffering, to impugn His justice, to doubt His goodness, to question His love. And we may even convince ourselves that our temptations are God's fault. Now, none of this is new. This, this kind of thought process has been going on since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In fact, you might remember the Garden of Eden after Eve took the fruit and ate of it, gave it to Adam to eat, and God showed up and said, what have you done? Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent, right? They just passed the buck. And even as Adam blamed Eve, he also included some blame on God. He said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So in Adam's mind, the whole fiasco was God's fault. Now for this reason, James turns from these outward trials to the inner temptations. 
And in so doing, he clears God of any wrongdoing and he indicts the true culprit. So the first thing we see here is that James makes it very clear where sin and temptation don't come from and where they do come from. So beginning in verse 13, James explains the origin of sin. Look with me at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So James starts by telling us that God is cleared as perfectly holy. God is cleared of any charge we can bring against Him about our temptations because He is perfectly holy. James is emphatic. Don't blame God. God is not responsible for your bent towards sin. Even if you're facing outward trials, even if life is really hard, any temptation that is coming your way, it does not come from God. And James points to two things as evidence for this. First, God's character. He points to God's character. He says God is not tempted by evil. Now, the Greek word translated there, not tempted, the only place in all the Bible this word is used is right here in this verse. And it can be translated as untouched by or unacquainted with. God is unacquainted with temptation and evil. He's untouched by it. God does not experience evil. God is untemptable. It's not possible for God to even consider going against His own nature. One pastor wrote, God is unsusceptible to evil. Evil has never had any appeal for Him. It is repugnant and abhorrent to Him. So because it's not within God's character to be tempted or to experience evil, it is therefore outside the realm of God's actions. It's against God's character and it's against God's actions. His nature is so opposed to sin, he cannot possibly act to tempt anyone towards it. Now, you may be wondering, now wait a minute, David, didn't, if God does not tempt us to sin, why did Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation? Why are we asking God to not do something that God's not going to do? That's a good question. And the answer again comes back to what we've talked about before, that Greek word, that can mean outward testing or inner temptation. It's the same Greek word. So which meaning of that did Jesus mean? Well, Jesus was referring to times of testing, to the outward trials that James mentions there at the beginning of verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. We pray for God to protect us from succumbing to the temptation in the face of our trials. By praying, lead me not in temptation, we're saying, Lord, let there be nothing in my heart that will entice me away from you and your plans for my life. You're asking God to work in your heart to help you to be the kind of person that doesn't give in to the temptations when they come, who doesn't fall away in those times of trial and testing. That's what Jesus means by that. So, if there's nothing wrong with God that would lead us into temptation and sin, then there must be something wrong with us. So after James clears God as being perfectly holy, he tells us that we are indicted as utterly sinful. Temptation comes from within each of us. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. 
You see, James doesn't even give us a pass by blaming Satan. James doesn't say, but each is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by the devil, but by his own desires. See, we can't even use the old excuse, the devil made me do it. First of all, the devil can't make you do anything. But James is saying the devil's not even responsible for your temptation. Now, you may say, now, David, that doesn't make any sense to me. How can Satan not be the culprit? When I'm tempted, you're telling me the devil doesn't tempt me to sin? Didn't he tempt Adam and Eve? Didn't he tempt Jesus? Yes, yes, and yes. Satan is the ultimate source of all temptation. There would be no temptation in the world if it weren't for Satan. James isn't denying that. But the truth of the matter is, Satan could have no success with us were it not for the fact we already have a sinful nature. We have a sin problem. Satan needs some place to start in tempting us towards sin, and our depraved nature gives him plenty to work with. Amen? We don't possess the sinless nature God does. We don't have this natural abhorrence to sin. Just as a pig has the nature to wallow in the mud, we have the nature to wallow in the slop of sin. It's in our nature. Now, how did we get this nature? Well, the Bible explains how through Adam's sin, we all inherited this sinful nature. Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin came in the world through Adam, but then we inherited from him. Isn't that a great thing to pass down to your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids? Sin. That's our family inheritance as human beings. We inherited Adam's rebellious bent towards sin. This fallen and depraved nature. We're no longer as God made us. When God created humans, He created us to desire Him to desire from Him what is good and true and right and and holy, but sin distorts, it twists and perverts all of that. And now our hunger and our thirst are for the wrong things, and, and, and we even seek the right things. We seek fulfillment in the wrong places. We look for purpose and meaning and happiness and peace apart from God, which is impossible. We're like the foolish man in the desert who's trying to quench his thirst with sand. And there's an oasis right there. That's what we do. In his commentary on James, David Plant makes the point that now more than ever, we need to realize the responsibility for temptation and sin lies squarely within ourselves. Because we live in a world that at every turn is telling us to blame someone else. Right? You're the victim. Somebody else is at fault. Blame somebody else for your sins and your mistakes. You're absolved of responsibility. Whether it's blaming our genetics, our family, our upbringing. The fault lies with our friends, with the government, with just about anything else but ourselves. That's the world we live in today. But the painful truth is that my sin lies with me. Your sin lies with you. We have a deep-seated problem at the core of our being. Our hearts are deceptive beyond belief. And we are depraved with a bent towards sin beyond our ability to fix it. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, in my fallen human nature. For the desire to do 
uh, what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it, even when we know the right thing to do. We find it hard to do the right thing. And when we know something is the wrong thing, sometimes we find it hard not to do the wrong thing. The problem of sin and temptation is with us. That's the origin of sin. But then James move on, moves on to talk about the anatomy of sin. Look at verses 14 and 15. And I've been trying to not have to put these on, but I'm going to have to put these on. So I'll, I've joined the club. <laughs> my notes on my iPad are big enough. I can read them fine. But, but, and I even have a larger print Bible that I used to have and it's still not big enough. So verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sin just doesn't happen to us all of a sudden, does it? We don't just happen to fall into sin. No, we brazenly just kind of walk right into it of our own volition. But there is a progression towards sin. It comes in stages. And if we learn to identify this progression, then we can work better at avoiding it with God's wisdom, with His strength. James uses two very vivid word pictures here to illustrate how sin works within us, the anatomy of sin, the inner workings of sin. And the first analogy is a fishing analogy. And he actually uses, he pulls two Greek words right out of his tackle box. The first is this word that's translated drawn, and some, some versions say dragged away. Drawn or dragged away, it literally means lured. And that word enticed means ensnared. So it's kind of like, like hunting, fishing kind of language here. But think about it, when you go fishing, you throw your hook into the water, you're dropping that bait right there in the path of some unsuspecting fish. Right? I mean, he's just going about his day, minding his own business. He's on his way to work, whatever, you know, fish do. And plop, here comes this worm over there, this, this bait. It's a worm, it's a bug, it's, a, it's, a, it's another fish. It's something that I can eat. It's there for my good. It's there for me. It's attractive. And I'm hungry. And so the fish goes for it. Now, for James's readers, fishing was not so much. They did some rod line fishing. They didn't really have reels, but they had rod line fishing. But a lot of their fishing was done with either like a box or a basket-type trap. You'd put the bait in there, the fish would go in, and it would trap them in. They couldn't get back out. Or a net. But they would swim into that net, and they would pull that net up and trap the fish. So the fish is, is lured. The fish is drawn away from its course. It's enticed and ensnared in the fisherman's trap. So the first step in that process is deception. There's a deception that goes on. If you, if you fish, you're being a deceptive person. Do you know that? You're trying to deceive that fish. That's the purpose of bait. The purpose of the bait is to deceive the fish into thinking, oh, this is something for my good. This is something for my benefit. It's food for me. Temptation begins with deception. Genesis 3 gives us the perfect example of that. When Satan tempted Eve, he began with a deceptive question meant to foster unbelief in her heart. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And that's not what God said, by the way. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. I just can't do it. 
But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, God also did not say they couldn't touch it. So already both Satan and Eve are putting words in God's mouth. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First notice, the serpent is called cunning. Okay, as Satan manifests himself through the serpent to Eve, his nature is one of deception. He's a trickster. He's not to be believed. Satan in John, uh, Jesus in John 8, 44 describes Satan like this. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks of his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So in his cunning nature, in his deceptive nature, Satan planted the seed of doubt in Eve's mind about God's Word, about whether she could really trust what God had said. Now, the same question is out there in the world today. Did God really say? Did God really say that sex is to be reserved between a man and a woman in marriage? Does the Bible really say that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is murder, that Jesus is the only way to God? Is that really what God says? That's what the world is constantly putting in front of us all the time. Well, Satan then goes from just planting those seeds of doubt to an outright lie. He, and he called God a liar. He said, no, you certainly will not die. That was completely false. And then he questioned God's motives. And Satan does the same thing today. He spreads the same lies today. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's holding out on you. You don't have to do it that way. There are multiple paths to God. There are many doors to heaven. You don't need God to be good or happy or successful. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You get to choose what is right and wrong. Those are still the lies that we hear from Satan today. See, this is where sin begins. It begins by questioning God that leads to unbelief and denying His character, His Word, and His ways. And God's truth is supplanted with a false narrative that elevates above all else me, myself, and my desires. And that's the second part of the progress. We go from deception to desires. Because once the fish buys into the lie that that bait is there for him, he just simply follows his stomach, right? He's just listening to his appetite, his desires. The idea in fishing is you're hiding the hook. That's the deception. You're hiding the hook within the bait, and the bait is what the fish desires. That's what temptation does. It uses our desires against us. It draws us towards sin while hiding the hook that will enslave us. Because temptation always promises what it can never give. It offers freedom, but it ends only in slavery. It promises happiness, but that happiness is fleeting and it's empty. It tells us that we can find peace and joy and meaning apart from God our Creator, but when we walk down that path, we find ourselves lost, confused, adrift, consumed by worry and fear. It goes on in verse 6. It says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable. There's that word, desire. It was desirable for attaining wisdom. 
So she takes some of the she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. All temptation begins with a natural God-given desire, right? The desire to eat. We've got to eat to live, right? The desire for wisdom. He wanted wisdom. That's a good thing, right? But temptation distorts those God-given desires. And it, and it leads us to look in the wrong places for fulfillment. We want love, but we turn to illicit sex to get it. People long for community, but they turn to gangs and drugs and LGBT community, to cults, to other destructive groups for that sense of belonging. We try to find meaning and happiness and security, which are all good things. All these are good things to look for. But we look for them in money, in possessions, in career advancement, in Facebook locks. As the song says, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. David Platt writes, Sin starts with disordered thoughts. That's the deception. Starts with disordered thoughts, which leads to disordered desire, and we begin to want that which will destroy us. So the third part of the progress is disobedience. Once we're deceived and we start to follow our desires, being deceived about the nature of them, that leads to disobedience. And here James uses his second word picture, one of childbirth. Look back at verse 15, James 1.15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The suggestion is that when we surrender to these disordered, deceived desires, disobedience is conceived and that gives birth to sin. Now, it's important to understand something here. Being tempted to sin is not the same as committing sin. Struggling with a wrong desire is not the same thing as giving into it and disobeying God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4.15 says, For we do not, talking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So we don't have to feel guilty because we're tempted. We don't have to feel guilty because maybe we have a, a bent, an inclination toward a particular sin. According to Hebrews, there's no temptation that goes through your mind that Jesus Himself did not face and overcome. Every temptation known to man, Jesus faced it and defeated it for you. So being tempted is not in and of itself anything sinful. As one old Scottish minister put it, it's when the desire of man goes out to meet and embrace the forbidden thing and an unholy marriage takes place between these two. He says that's when sin is born. And when sin grows up, it results in death. Death. Now, I want you to notice that James here mentions two births. First, evil. Evil desire gives birth to sin, but then when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. Kent Hughes remarks on this. He said the idea is that sin grows rapidly just as an embryo grows to maturity, and when it's full grown, the state of pregnancy must end. But the horror here is that sin does not give birth to life as we would normally expect, but to death. So if you, if you think about it, both of these word pictures that James uses results in death. First, the fish gives in to its desire. It's hooked. It's brought out of the water. And what happens to the fish next? 
It dies. Either it goes in a frying pan or it goes up on the wall, right? Either way, it's dead. And the childbirth that results from this unholy marriage of our deceptive desires and disobedience is also death. Both of these word pictures end in death. You know, you can, you can kind of think about this progress, and all of us, all of us have seen this progression. You know, it's late at night. You've, you, dinner was a long time ago, right? It was a long time ago. You're getting hungry. Okay, tummy's growling. You know it's like 10, 11 o'clock. You don't need to be eating. But man, that t- tub of ice cream in the fridge, or in the freezer, if it's in the fridge, it's a milkshake. If that tub of ice cream in the freezer is you know, starting to call your name, right? And you start to lie to yourself. Now, maybe you're on a diet. Maybe, maybe you're, you're trying to lose some weight. Maybe, you know, maybe a little lactose intolerant or something. You know you should not eat that ice cream, but you start to lie to yourself. A little bit won't hurt. Hey, I've got all my steps in today. I've got a few more calories to spend, right? I worked out this morning. You know, Mike, this is always the problem for me. You know, it's like I work out some. I, you know, I get my steps in. That means I can have ice cream tonight. So you don't lose any weight, right? That's the way that works. You lie to yourself. You deceive yourself, and you give in to those desires. You open up that freezer. And it starts off, I'm just going to have a scoop. And a scoop turns into a bowl. And a bowl turns into two bowls. And before you know it, you're putting ice cream on the shopping list. And then what happens? That you crash from that sugar rush, all those carbs that you've binged on, you feel bloated and you feel gross, right? You feel awful. It's like, it's like death. Especially the next morning. So... This is the way all of our temptations work, isn't it? We laugh because we've been there. We know how this works. So to put it plainly, James is telling us that God is entirely holy. Man is inherently sinful. My desire leads to enticement, leads to sin, leads to death. See, sin is not the light, casual thing that we make it out to be. Sin always leads to death. Someone once said, you can only be a fun-loving sinner for so long. Soon, the bill has to be paid. And that final installment of the death that sin leads to is an eternal death. An eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Now, we can choose to ignore the reality of this divine judgment. We can pretend that it isn't true, but that doesn't make it go away. Or we can choose to accept the clear teaching of Scripture and embrace the only solution to our sin. Luckily, James doesn't end with verse 15. You know, if James ended with verse 15, we'd kind of go home a little defeated and depressed today, wouldn't we? But he goes on to offer us the solution to sin. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By His own choice, He gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The solution to sin. God's saving, sanctifying work in our mind and heart to give us abundant and eternal life is the solution to our sin. God doesn't abandon us in our sin. And as God's Spirit works in us, we are made into new creatures. Our minds are renewed. We're transformed from the inside out to be more like Jesus. Now, does that mean that as new creations in Christ, we're never going to sin again? No. Because salvation is both an event and a process. It's an event in that the moment you turn from sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. 
Period. You are justified. You are made right with God. You are saved from that eternal penalty of sin. But then the process begins. The Holy Spirit indwells you and He begins this lifelong process of sanctification, of saving you daily from the power of sin. And then someday in heaven, we'll experience that glorification where we will be saved even from the presence of sin. But what James is writing about here is that sanctification process, that that process by which sin's grip is being broken to the point that it no longer dominates our lives. And how does that happen? How does this sanctifying process work? Well, much like trying to count it all joy, much like trying to gain wisdom, we can't do any of those things of ourselves. We need God to be at work in us. I cannot sanctify myself. Now, sanctification is a partnership. I partner with God. I cultivate my relationship with God. I spend time in His Word. And that's what James wants us not to be deceived about. He doesn't want us to be deceived about the nature of our sin or the nature of God's solution. Now, we've already looked at our nature. We've already looked at our sin problem. Now let's look, as we conclude this morning, with the truth about God. He tells us in verse 17, first, that God is the giver of all good things. God can't tempt us to sin because all God can do is give us good things. That's what He does. James compares him to the stars. You know, when we, when we look at the stars, from our perspective, they're constant and unchanging, right? People have been looking at the Big Dipper for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years and it's still there. James is saying God is even more unchanging and constant than the stars. He has only always ever and only will ever give good gifts. We can count on it. And the best of all the good gifts He gives us James talks about that in verse 18. God is the author of the new birth. That new birth that God authors is the greatest of all the good gifts that He gives us. Now notice that He says here that He gave birth. By His choice, He gave birth. Don't you think James maybe is connecting that back up to verse 15? Our evil desires give birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. But God gives birth to us, to eternal life to new creations in Christ Jesus. Temptation leads to spiritual death, but God is the giver of the gift that leads to spiritual life. And that is birthed into us by the word of truth, the gospel. Now, a few things about this new birth. First, it comes by God's will. It comes by God's will. It's motivated purely by God's sovereign grace. Did you give birth to yourself? No. Who gave birth to you? Oh, this is easy, y'all. Low-hanging fruit here. Who gave birth to you? Your mother. You can't give birth to yourself, nor can you give spiritual birth to yourself. God the Father gives that to you. It is by His will that we are born. John 1, 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. God chose to give you new birth. Secondly, it comes through God's Word. Through God's Word, it says that He gave us birth through His Word. His word of truth. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, 
Paul says, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And then in Romans 10, he says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. You cannot come to faith in Christ. You cannot experience this new birth apart from the word of God. Apart from hearing the good news that despite your sin, despite your brokenness, God loved you enough to send His Son to die on the cross for you, to pay the price that you deserve so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. You have to hear the word of truth before you were born again. And then number three, James says it's all for the glory of God. It's by God's will, it's through God's word, and it's for God's glory. James mentions first fruits. Here, and he's drawing our attention back to the words of Christ, specifically John 15. Jesus speaks at length about this idea of us bearing fruit and being fruit. Okay? And, and oftentimes in the New Testament, fruit refers to believers. We are fruit. And Jesus says in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. We glorify God in the fact that we are first fruits. We come to faith in Christ. But notice he says we're first fruits. That means there's more fruit to follow. And he expects us to be a part of his kingdom work to bring more people to faith in Christ. We are saved by God's will, not ours. We are saved through the truth of God's word, not our opinions, not our ideas, not our works. And we are saved for God's glory, not our own, not the churches, not the pastors, but God's. Now this morning, maybe you're experiencing the conviction of God over your sin, over your need for a Savior. I invite you this morning to come. Trust in Jesus Christ. Let Him remove forever from you sin's penalty. Let Him begin that process in you of the new birth, whereby His Spirit helps you to become more and more like Jesus, where He begins to save you more and more from sin's power in your life. If you've never done that, I invite you to come. Trust in Jesus. The gift is free. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. It is freely given by God to you. And if you have done that, to to my fellow Christians who have trusted in Christ, you're still struggling with temptation. Will you recognize that you've already received this gift of spiritual life? You don't need to be saved again. But maybe you need to recommit yourself to nurture that life. Maybe you need to commit yourself to being more accountable to your church family. To spending more time in God's Word. We'll look at this next week. That the way that we nurture our spiritual life, the way that we grow in Christ-likeness is based in the Word of God. This altar is open for you to come. To lay down your sin, to lay down these temptations. Maybe even trying to fight them on your own. Say, God, forgive me. Fill me with your Spirit and help me to walk closer with you. Maybe God is leading you to not with this church family. Whatever God has laid on your heart, let's be doers of the Word. Let's obey what He has told us today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that, <clears throat> that apart from Christ, we are sinners lost and deserving of eternal damnation. We have a bent towards sinning. We can't seem to help ourselves but be selfish and cruel and to make a mess of Your good world. But we praise You that You love us so much that through Your Son, Jesus Christ, You made a way 
for us to be forgiven of our sin, for us to be made right with You, for us to begin to be transformed every day more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into the people You created us to be. And as we wait for that day where we are glorified in Your presence, we still contend with the fallen world. We still live with this sinful human flesh and we pray that You would guide us and help us day by day to get stronger. You promise to provide a way out of temptation for us. You command us to flee from youthful lust, to flee from idolatry, to pursue You. God, help us to trust in Your solution for our sin problem. God, whatever You're laying on our hearts and minds today, may we be obedient and responsive to Your Spirit.